And the book of Daniel is divided in half by theme. We know that the first half, the first six chapters are a historical autobiography of this man Daniel's time in Babylon and it covers one major event per chapter across several decades including events like the famous lion's den encounter. And the second half of the book of Daniel records dreams and visions that Daniel received from the Lord which prophesy the future. And it's so intriguing for us to study today because some of those prophecies that Daniel received have already come to pass while others are yet to happen in the future even from our perspective. And the last time we were in our study, we're in the back half of Daniel chapter nine, which is the most incredible and specific prophecy in the entire Bible, the prophecy that predicted Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry to the day hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth as a man. This week, we're going to learn some fascinating things about the spiritual realm, what we generally consider to be real is the physical realm that is perceptible to you and I. But the Bible tells us there are other dimensions of reality as well, a spiritual realm, an unseen world where spiritual forces do battle. And to give you an example of what I'm referring to, I thought we'd do a quick read through of an incident involving Elisha the prophet, one of the Old Testament prophets who was used most powerfully by God. And you don't need to turn there, I can just read it to you, but if you'd like to follow along with us, we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. We'll move pretty quick through it, though. It says, now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. So what was happening at this time is the Syrians would sort of move into Israel, set up camp, and then from that camp they would launch raids on the Israelite army, on Israelite villages. They'd do swift attacks, they'd destroy them, they'd steal a bunch of stuff and they'd head out. But then we read this, and the man of God, that's Elisha the prophet, sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So what would happen is God would tell Elisha where the Syrians were going to be. Elisha would tell Israel's king and he would make sure that there were really no Israelites in the area when the Syrians were there, that there was no livestock, there was nothing for them to steal. Then we read, therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So tell me who among us is spying for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, none my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when we talk about a city, we're talking about a very small area, probably five to 10 acres with a city wall around it. And he's got a whole bunch of the Syrian army encamped around this city by night. And when the servant of the man of God, so when Elisha's servant arose early and went out, So he wakes up, gets out, stretches, goes to look at the view over the city wall. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, Elisha, answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Are you getting the picture here? And the servant had to be thinking, "Um, I don't know what you're looking at, but we've got like a bunch of redneck farmers here with like shovels and stuff and that's an army out there. What what do you mean those who are with us are more than those who are with them? And Elisha prayed and you can almost imagine Elisha going like, and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So what is so interesting is that Elisha prays to God and he says, open the eyes of my servant. The implication being that his servant was not seeing. It was like he was blind. And in one very literal sense he was. For Elisha was able to see what true reality was in the spiritual realm. His servant couldn't. And in a moment when his servant could see true reality, he understood that Elisha was not afraid because the armies of God were surrounding them and they were completely outnumbering the Syrians. So Elisha prays God, just strike them all with blindness and they're struck with blindness. Now Elisha said to them, this is really funny because Elisha walks out of the city to the army and he says to them, oh this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time where Israel's king and military are situated. So he leads them right into basically the town square in the middle of Samaria and they're blind. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And there they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders, understatement of the year, came no more to the land of Israel. (laughs) That's all it says. You think? You see, Elisha knew, Elisha knew that if his servant could just see the spiritual reality of the situation, his entire perception and conclusions would be changed. So too, there are spiritual realities that every believer needs to be aware of because they profoundly affect the way things play out in the physical world around us. So let's flip back to Daniel 10 and we'll begin in verse 1. We read, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message, underlined message, was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And you may recall that Belteshazzar was just the Babylonian name that Daniel was given when he was first brought to Babylon from Israel as a young Hebrew captive. And they only mention that here because there were people who would read these writings of Daniel and they would only know him by his Babylonian name. So we didn't want to confuse him. That's why he mentions it. Daniel has been retired from public life for about three years at this point and he's still living in Babylon, living very comfortably. He's been prime minister of the province of Babylon twice under two different empires. So he's just sort of enjoying a quiet life at this time. Then we read this, the message was true, but, and then underline this, the appointed time was long. The appointed time was long. In other words, the message that was delivered to Daniel, we're going to find out it's delivered by an angel, was to give him understanding regarding some of the visions he had previously received, visions that related to the end times. That's why Daniel says the appointed time was long. These are going to be explanations from this angel that will help Daniel understand things that take place at the end times. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning, underline mourning, three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel is in an emotional state of mourning, and one of the ways he's showing his grief is by not eating pleasant foods. Scholars suggest that he's probably just on a kale diet because of that wording we see there. And he's not drinking any wine either. Wine, of course, is synonymous with joy in Hebrew culture, so he's not drinking any wine. 
It also says he's not anointing himself. And they didn't take baths very often back then. Instead, they would often use a strong scented anointing oil to sort of mask the odor between baths. I was thinking, what's a good comparison? I would say, oh, it's like a, uh, a young teenage boy believing that a spray can of deodorant is a good substitute for a bath. Doesn't work now and it probably didn't work all that well back then either. Now I know this is probably going to offend some people, but it's never stopped me before. What Daniel is doing here has been popularized in the modern church as the Daniel fast. If you've ever heard of the Daniel fast, this is where it comes from, verses 2 and 3 of Daniel 10. And I just want to point out a couple of things that it tells us in the text. What Daniel is doing here, he is doing as an outward expression of his inner mourning. He's grieving. That's why he's doing these things. It's not like he's abstaining from these things to try and twist God's arm. He's just saying, I'm in a state of mourning. I'm so grieved by something that it doesn't feel right to me to eat pleasurable things. It just doesn't seem like a season for me to be having fun. And so he's giving outward actions that line up with his inward feeling of grief. Fasting is ceasing the intake of calories because it produces certain results in your body. Your metabolism slows down. Your thinking slows down in a good way. Your thoughts become less clouded and it creates more space physiologically for you to hear from God because everything slows down and quietens when your body ceases to intake calories. Now, I don't ever want to give the impression that seeking the Lord in any way is a bad thing. It's always a good thing. But I do want to be clear that the Daniel fast is not really a thing based on what we actually read in the Bible. If we were going to take what Daniel is doing here in chapter 10 as a model, the model would be removing pleasurable things from our lives for a season when we're deeply grieved about something, be it our sin or the sin of another person and we're in a state of mourning. That's the central theme of the Daniel fast is that he's in a state of mourning and grief. And he's asking God to move in the area he's grieving about. I hope that makes sense. I don't share that to discourage anyone, but to simply make sure that we don't read things into the Bible that aren't there. And if you've done a Daniel fast and been really blessed through it, praise God, that's great. I just want to make sure we're clear on what the Bible's actually saying. So why would Daniel be in this condition of mourning? What is he so upset about? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. It says it's the third year of the reign of Cyrus the Great, and we know that in the first year of the reign of Cyrus, he issued the decree that freed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city, rebuild the temple. He even offered them financial incentives to go do that. However, we know that only around 50,000 Jews made that trip, and there were probably hundreds of thousands of Jews in Babylon at that time. We know that at this time they've been unable to rebuild the walls of the city because of enemies that surround them. And we know that the rebuilding of the temple is taking a long, long time. Daniel could be mourning over his people's relative lack of enthusiasm to return to their homeland Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. And his grief would have been amplified by the fact that for whatever reason he was unable to make the journey back to Israel. We don't know exactly why. It could have been because of health reasons. He could have been in his 90s at this point. The Lord may have simply told him to stay in Babylon or because he was some sort of ex-government official, the rulers may have simply said, we want you around just in case we need you to consult on something and we need you to stay here. What we do know for sure is that Daniel will never return to Israel and it wasn't due to a lack of desire on his part. So he could be grieving that while he would love to return to Israel, that heart is not really being shared by his people collectively. For a second possibility, take a look at verse one again. It says, a message was revealed to Daniel and then it says, the message was true, but the appointed time was long and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. So looking back to Daniel 9, the chapter that we did last time we were in this study that was about the 70 weeks. Just think about this, if Daniel understood the prophecy even just about the first 69 of those weeks, if he understood that, then he would have understood 
that it meant his people, the Jews, would reject Messiah when he finally came. It says Daniel understood the vision. So he would have understood that. And I can't even fathom the depth of grief that would have caused in a man who loved God the way Daniel did, to know that God was going to send, as you'll recall, it says in chapter nine, Messiah the Prince, but that Messiah the Prince is gonna be cut off. He's going to be killed. His people are gonna reject him. And then if Daniel had understanding, as this seems to say about the full 70 weeks, he would understand that there would be this enormous amount of time, a couple of thousand years, between the Jews rejecting their Messiah and the time when they would finally accept him. And that would have caused him incredible, incredible grief. So we don't know the exact reason that Daniel is mourning, but I would suggest to you those are the two most likely possibilities. In the last part of verse three, we're told Daniel had been in this condition for three whole weeks, 21 days. These first few verses remind us that Daniel was a man who took his spiritual life seriously. He was intense when it came to the things of God, incredibly intense. But what is most extraordinary to me about Daniel's intensity is that we know he was at least 80 years old at this time. And I just wanna ask you, how would you have responded to this situation if you were in Daniel's shoes? How would you have responded even if you had that same understanding of the vision? I can tell you how I would have responded. I probably would have said, you know, It's been an amazing life. God has used me to help release the Jews from Babylon and it's a bummer that more of them aren't going back to rebuild the homeland and rebuild Jerusalem. But you know what? I was faithful in my part and the Lord hasn't called me to go back to Israel so clearly he's called someone else to fight that battle. And you know, sure it's terrible that my people are going to reject Messiah but that's not gonna happen for a couple of hundred years so that's kind of, out of my hands, plus I'm over 80. I've had a great political career, I'm I'm financially comfortable, I'm living in the most advanced and luxurious city on earth, and when I look around at all the signs and the evidence, it's clear that God has just given me a a great season of rest after uh, such a hardworking life. God is so good. That would have been how I would have seen it. And I don't think there's anything in that that actually sounds unreasonable. Most of us would probably come to the same conclusions. But that wasn't Daniel. You see, Daniel looked at the situation. He observed the hearts of his people and he came to the conclusion, there's work that needs to be done in the hearts of my people. They need to be changed and because I'm burdened by what I'm seeing, And because he hasn't called me to preach to them or to lead them, if I'm burdened, then it must be because I'm meant to pray. And pray he did with a fervor and a passion and an intensity that would put the most youthful and zealous among us to shame. And that's why I love Daniel so much. He embodied a truth that we in the church so often get backwards. Here's the principle, make a note of this. This is why I love Daniel, he embodies this principle. Spiritual passion and devotion should increase with age, not decrease. Spiritual passion and devotion should increase with age, not decrease. In our Western church culture, we so often link spiritual passion and zeal with youth and act as though they are shallow pursuits that should fall away with age and be replaced by a more dignified, less expressive version of the faith. And it should not be so. Because as we age, we should be growing in the faith. We should be adding to our knowledge and revelation of Jesus. And greater revelation of Jesus should result in greater passion for Jesus. So if your passion for Jesus is decreasing as you age, let me be very blunt with you, it means that your revelation of Jesus is becoming increasingly clouded. It's becoming increasingly obscured. It's dimming where it should be growing. Daniel grew in his passion for the Lord until the day he died. My goal is to love the Lord more on the last day I live on this earth than I did any of the days that came before it. That's the goal. 
because I never want to stop growing in my love for the Lord. And my body's going to break down and things are going to stop working. But my love for God can grow until the day I die. And I want my last day, my last breath in this life to be on the day that I love the Lord more than any other that came before it. I'm also blessed, and you can make a note of this, that Daniel's prayers became bigger with age. His prayers became bigger with age. I noticed that his prayers grew to include not just himself and his friends and their needs, but to the point where he is now seriously, we just breeze past this, but understand this, he is seriously and intensely praying for an entire nation. He's praying for the whole nation of Israel with an intensity that shows he believes his prayers will do something. They'll actually make a difference. And I've shared before that I struggle with being jaded in the area of massive prayers like this. I struggle with faith when people want to pray for a city or for a nation to be saved. Because even to me as a pastor, I just think like, really, we're going to have a day of prayer in the Tri-Cities and... The Tri-Cities are going to turn to Jesus? Like, that's not going to happen. I struggle with that. And the Lord's continued to work on me through the book of Daniel in this specific area. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about prayer. And I was just thinking, you know, where do we generally go when we think, well, what does the Bible say about prayer? And the place most of us go first is we go to what's known as the Lord's Prayer. The way Jesus told his disciples they should pray when he said, here's a model. If you don't think you know how to pray, just use this as a model. And I was thinking about how ludicrously massive the first part of the Lord's prayer is. It's huge. In his model for daily prayer, when Jesus is saying, oh, here's some good things to pray about to your heavenly father. First couple of lines, when you're warming up, you should pray for, pray for this. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, are you grasping how huge that prayer is? All I'm asking for, Lord, just to get the ball rolling here, is that your will would be as perfectly done on earth as it's done in heaven right now. That's all. That's all I'm asking for. And we know that that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on the earth but yet Jesus told his disciples to pray for that way back then, and he tells us to pray for it now. Why? Because it changes us, and it changes the desires of our hearts, but also because it has an impact in the spiritual realm, as we shall see later on in this study. Look at verse 4. Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris. So Daniel is a little bit east of Babylon at this point. We don't know why. He's on some sort of trip, apparently. Uh, not a trip like take a pilgo on a trip, like an actual trip, just for clarity, because we're talking dreams and visions here. A literal trip at the Tigris River in real life when he encounters someone. Verse 5, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I highlight the use of that word like because he's not saying it was these things. He's saying these are the best words I have to describe to you what he looked like. Now, some people get confused because this sounds a lot like the description of Jesus that shows up in Revelation 1. However, when we reach verse 13 in Daniel 10, we're going to learn that this certain man needed to be helped by the archangel Michael. And I think we can safely say Jesus doesn't need help from anyone, especially an angel that he himself created. I also don't think it's Gabriel because Daniel had seen Gabriel before. It talked about it back in chapter 8, and, and he would have recognized him. So all we can say for sure is that this certain man is some type of high-ranking and important angel who is bringing Daniel a message from the Lord. Verse 7, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. So Daniel's the only one in the group who sees this angel, but those who are with him, they can feel, they can just sense that there's something going on and it scares the heck out of them so they flee the scene. Make a note of this. 
it may seem obvious, but we need to be reminded of this. Those who seek the Lord seriously will receive greater revelation than those who don't. Those who seek the Lord seriously will receive greater revelation than those who don't. God's not a communist. Yes, Jesus died for everyone, but just as we know there will be varying degrees of rewards in heaven, so too do people receive different degrees of revelation based on how seriously they seek the Lord. Bible says the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The Bible even says explicitly, yes, your prayers are more powerful when you're being faithful to the Lord. Bible actually says that. As the Lord said to Jeremiah, I put this on your outline, I think. He said, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And when I talk about seeking the Lord seriously, I mean with persistence and consistency. So, so don't give it a go in the service today, in the time of worship following this, and then say, well, I gave it a try. I sought the Lord seriously. There were three straight minutes there. I took the whole song and I sought him and nothing happened. No angel, so I'm on to your scam. That's not what we're talking about. Daniel's the model here. Daniel has not been having any pleasurable foods or anything like that, and he's been praying with intensity for 21 days. Persistence, consistency, seriousness. And what I'm saying is that if you or I will seek the Lord day after day with sincerity and seriousness as Daniel did, we will receive revelation from God. I guarantee it. We will receive revelation from God. Those who don't take the Lord seriously will know that something's going on. They'll recognize it in your life, but they won't really understand it. And many times the result will be fear. Perhaps you've experienced this if, if you didn't walk with the Lord for a season in your life and you suddenly began this relationship with Jesus and God starts speaking to you through his word, through sermons, through new Christians who come around you and your life begins changing and people that aren't serious about God who don't have a relationship with him, they look on and they're saying, you're weird. You know, you used to be cool. And you're talking to an invisible guy in the sky now? Man, I, I feel sorry for you. This is... This is off, something's wrong, and they're uncomfortable, and there's fear because they don't understand it. Not everyone receives the same revelation, and you'll often find that isolation accompanies revelation. Isolation often accompanies revelation. When the other guys started running away in fear, Daniel didn't say, not now, Lord, you're making me look weird in front of my guys. Not Daniel, he said, cool, I want the revelation. That's what I want. And he didn't think twice about the fact it came at the cost of isolation, which is good because write this down, revelation sometimes requires isolation. Revelation sometimes requires isolation. Sometimes there are voices in our lives that need to be stilled before we can hear from the Lord clearly. We need to create some space in our lives. We can do that through fasting, through taking a break from internet and TV, by going for a walk to be alone with the Lord, by getting up before the kids in the morning. I know, it's difficult. Sometimes we have to craft that space by letting certain relationships go, and often we're not the one who does it. Sometimes the Lord has to come into our life, and those people who aren't taking the Lord seriously, they just don't wanna hang out with you anymore. And you begin to find out you're not being invited to those same parties you used to be invited to. You're not being asked to come out like you used to. And the Lord is working to get you to the place where these voices that are unhelpful are no longer distracting you. You want the ultimate example of this? Look at John the Apostle. We're talking about Revelation. John the Apostle received the Revelation, the book of Revelation. How did he get it? God had to create a lot of room. God arranged for John to be exiled on the island of Patmos, this barren rock in the Mediterranean in total isolation. That's where God spoke to John and gave him the book of Revelation. That's what God had to do in John's life. And I'm pretty confident 
because he had already by that point been willing to go through stuff like being boiled in oil for serving Jesus. I'm pretty confident John's relationship with the Lord was solid long before Patmos, leader of the Jerusalem church, incredible guy, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved one. Even for John, God had to get him alone in isolation so that he could receive revelation. This is huge. If you are in a season of isolation right now, in your personal life, in your family life, perhaps in your work life, and you just feel so alone, let me encourage you to consider the possibility that the Lord may be crafting your life in such a way that he can cause you to receive special revelation in a way you never have before. And it would be a real shame if you missed it because you were too busy crying about the fact that you are in isolation. That would be a real tragedy. If the Lord was crafting space in your life and all you could say is, I wish I wasn't alone. And the Lord is saying, no, I wanna speak to you. Listen, listen. You just may be headed into the greatest season of revelation you've ever had in your life. If you'll adjust your perspective and allow the Lord to speak to you. Verse eight, therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision. And no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty. The literal translation is my splendor was turned to ruin in me and I retained no strength. And the gist there is that in the presence of this angelic being that is holy, Daniel suddenly felt very spiritually inadequate. He was suddenly hyper aware of the fact that he was a human being in a fallen body that dealt with sin and he suddenly felt very spiritually out of place. Verse nine, yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This deep sleep, interestingly, is a word that only shows up a few times in the Bible. It's the same state that Adam was put into when the Lord took a rib out of him to craft Eve. It's a state of unconsciousness that's specifically induced by the Lord. So Daniel is knocked out for a moment with his face to the ground. Verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, and then underline this, man greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for, and then underline, I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. You might want to underline the whole rest of verse 12. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand, and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. We learn some very, very interesting and encouraging things about prayer from what this angel tells Daniel. Firstly, we notice that the angel tells Daniel, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Our heavenly Father hears when we pray. And not only does he hear, but he responds. We've talked before about the different ways that the Lord responds, but the fact remains nonetheless, he responds. And I know this sounds simple, but this is so huge and, and worth celebrating. So write this down, our heavenly Father hears and responds when we pray. He hears and responds when we pray. Secondly, and this is also huge, the angel connects God's response to Daniel's prayer with Daniel's attitude, his attitude. The angel acknowledges specifically, he says, Daniel, I came because on that first day, you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God. He set his heart to understand. Really get this. He set his heart not to demand, but to understand. 
The angel links God's rapid response to Daniel with the fact that Daniel didn't come before God and tell him what to do. He sought understanding as to what God was doing. He was praying along the lines of, Lord, I don't understand. What hope is there for your people if they reject Messiah? Why would you free your your people from Babylon if none of them even want to return to Jerusalem? What's going on? What, what What are you doing, Lord? It's the attitude that recognizes God as sovereign. He's in control. He has a plan. But it's the attitude that says, I just want to be on board, God, with what you're doing. I just want to understand. Give me understanding, God. And the angel also links God's rapid response with Daniel humbling himself before his God. You see, Daniel understood that he was not God. So he came humbly, not demanding, not dictating to God. So write this down. Our heavenly father responds to an attitude of humility that desires to know his will. An attitude of humility that desires to know his will. What a far cry this is from what you will see a lot on Christian TV and here in certain churches where they say, well, based on what the Bible says about how God loves us and he hears our prayers, we can boss God around like a genie, demand what we want, stand in faith, and he has to give it to us because he's bound himself to do that in the scriptures. That's not true. And that's not the attitude we see in Daniel. And the angel specifically acknowledges the fact that Daniel came humbly and he came seeking to understand. The angel tells Daniel, did you pick up on this? The angel tells Daniel that he was dispatched with a message for Daniel on the very first day that Daniel began praying. But how long has Daniel been praying for? 21 days. So why this gap of time between when the angel was dispatched from heaven with a message for Daniel and him arriving 21 days later? The answer is not, as some suggest, that angels use public transit. Let's find out in verse 13, it says the angel to Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. The words prince and king are being used here in verse 13 as titles of rank. And what you need to understand is that these titles are referring to ranks of spiritual forces, both angels allied to Jesus and fallen angels and demons allied to Satan. That's what it's talking about here in verse 13. And this one little verse contains some fascinating insights into the spiritual realm. On both the Lord's side and Satan's side, we learn that the spiritual forces are organized, including by ranks. So write this down. The armies of Jesus and Satan are organized and structured. They're organized and structured. And incredibly, we also learn that Satan's spiritual forces have geographic assignments. There are specific powerful fallen angels and or demons that were and are assigned to the region of Persia, Mesopotamia, modern day Iran. And we know they're powerful because of how hard it was for this angel to break through into this specific territory. And that explains why then and today certain parts of the world seem to be so spiritually dark. I read up on church planting a lot, and there are places in the world where they just know, you go to this place and try to plant a church, you're going to have a tough time. It's always been that way. And they don't need to update those statistics very much because those places have generally stayed the same for the last 2,000 years. Other examples I was thinking about are are places like Japan and, and even Russia. If you study what the Japanese and Russian armies did to people during World War II, it's horrific, subhuman behavior that can only be described as inspired by hell. And when you think, where does that come from? What's interesting is that both of those countries are still considered to be among the most difficult places on earth to spread the gospel. There are clearly 
powerful satanic forces at work in those regions. And I would suggest they're still there because last time I checked, Iran hadn't really had a major revival. They're still a little bit hostile toward Christianity last time I checked. Even now, as you look at that region of the world, ISIS has sprung up. Again, subhuman behavior that can only be described as inspired by hell. We also notice that Michael shows up here to assist this angel who's struggling to break through with this message for Daniel. Michael is the only angel specifically identified in scripture as the archangel. It uses the term in a singular sense, the archangel. It's the highest rank among the angels that are mentioned in the Bible. The other archangel that we know of, anybody know? Of course, is Lucifer. Lucifer was an archangel as well, if you read up on that, before he descended to become Satan. Michael was the one tasked with casting Lucifer out of heaven when he attempted to take over the throne of heaven. I always love to point it out to people, Jesus and Satan are not equals. Satan is a created being. He was an archangel. Jesus is the one who created both Michael and Lucifer as archangels. Jesus is the creator. The equivalent of Lucifer, his contemporary, is Michael an archangel. And so when Satan tries to take over heaven, Jesus doesn't even get off the throne. The Father doesn't get off the throne. It's Michael who leads the battle against Lucifer because they are contemporaries. Satan's not on the same level as God because nobody's on the same level as God. In verse 21, Michael will be identified to Daniel as Michael, your prince, meaning that Michael has a specific assignment as a protector of the Jews. In fact, Michael generally appears in the role of a warrior defending the Jews when he shows up in scripture. So make a note of this. Michael is the archangel and functions mainly as a warrior protector of Israel and the Jews. He functions as a warrior protector of Israel and the Jews. When he shows up in the Bible, he's generally fighting someone or something and usually to do with Israel. So what is Michael doing right now? probably something in Israel or he's like sabotaging Iran's nuclear program or something like that. That's probably what he's up to. We also notice that Michael, and this is super interesting to me, wish I could delve more into this, but I'm just going to keep hinting at it. Did you notice that Michael is called one of the chief princes? One of the chief princes, which would seem to tell us that there's some sort of council in heaven under the leadership of the Lord that consists of a group of high-ranking angels that share the title prince or chief princes, of which Michael is one. We can probably safely assume that Gabriel is also one of the chief princes, and it's my belief that it is the members of this group, this divine council that show up several times in the different chapters of the book of Daniel. You might want to go back, read through some of those earlier stories and see if you can spot them. For time purposes, I'm going to need to leave that to your own study. Many of us know that the Lord generally answers prayer in one of three ways. A lot of us have heard this. God answers every prayer. He says yes, no, or not yet, not yet. But what we see here is a fourth possibility that most of us have probably never considered that God gives an answer that is delayed by events in the spiritual realm. This angel was sent on day one with a message for Daniel, but this angel was intercepted by powerful satanic spiritual forces that did not want that message to reach Daniel. Now I wanna be clear, we don't know exactly how it works. What we do know is that our prayers affect what takes place in the spiritual realm, and that's one of the reasons we're exhorted in Scripture to pray over and over and over again. And we know that even though we don't know the specifics, our prayers seem to somehow strengthen the angels that the Lord assigns to our situation. We don't know what would have happened if Daniel had stopped praying after 20 days, but it's probably a safe bet that that breakthrough would not have come, that Michael would not have been dispatched. There was an element to this where Daniel kept persisting in prayer so that on the 21st day, the Lord said in heaven, Michael, I need you to go take care of this because apparently Daniel's not gonna stop. So we gotta go deal with this now. 
And that's why what Jesus really told his disciples was this. I put it on your outline and I, and I rendered this. If you take a look at the original language, this is what Jesus actually told his disciples. He said, not ask and it will be given to you. He said, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives and he who keeps seeking finds. And to him who keeps knocking, it will be opened. Jesus told his disciples to do the very thing that Daniel was doing here, persist in prayer. Don't just pray, pray through until the breakthrough. We need to not give up, and Daniel found that to be true. Jesus told his disciples it was true, and we need to recognize that it is true for us as well. And if you're like me when you're hearing this, you can't help but wonder, man, how many times have I failed to pray through? And the Lord heard me the first day I prayed, and a response was sent but I wouldn't keep praying through. Write this down. Significant spiritual breakthroughs require persistence in prayer. Significant, big spiritual breakthroughs require persistence in prayer. And we see this principle everywhere else in life. When we don't do this, we're like the person who says, I'm going to the gym, I'm getting a six pack for this summer does 10 sit-ups and goes, oh well, and goes home. And we do that with prayer all the time. I prayed for 30 seconds. I even prayed for like at least 15 seconds the next day, and a couple of days passed, and I prayed for like five seconds. Still nothing. I don't know what more I could do. Do that all the time. Spiritual warfare, battles in the supernatural realm are real. Listen, they're real whether you come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background or not. Your church upbringing has no bearing on whether or not these things are real. The Bible says they are real. And in fact, the Bible says, and just like we read in that story about Elisha and his servant, the spiritual realm is true reality. What we see around us, this is not true reality. This is not what is actually happening. Everything is not as it appears. And when we pray for things like the lost being saved, we are praying against serious spiritual forces. And I would suggest to you that those spiritual forces are incredibly strong right here where we live in Vancouver, where estimates are that only around 3.5% of the population of Greater Vancouver even attends church on a regular basis, and that's including Catholics. So what percentage of that three and a half percent do you think are actually following Jesus as devoted followers as well? Small numbers, very, very small numbers. We are in a difficult place for the gospel, a very, very difficult place for the gospel. And we need to be prepared for war. We need to understand what we're getting into. That means not quitting easily. It means persisting in prayer. And it means holding on to the truth that every prayer is accomplishing something in the spiritual realm. Every prayer is making a difference even if you don't see it today. In Ephesians 6.12, it's on your outlines, the Apostle Paul makes it clear as day when he tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not doing battle in this dimension but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's saying we're doing battle with forces in the spiritual realm. And Paul takes a good chunk of Ephesians 6 to talk about how to be effective in spiritual warfare as he talks about what he calls the armor of God. And in fact, I would recommend a great partner study to what we're talking about today in Daniel 10 would be to go back and revisit Ephesians 6. We've studied it before. You can listen to it online. It'll illuminate some things, especially in light of what we're studying today. The message of scripture on the subject of spiritual warfare is to urge us to remember at all times that true reality is the spiritual realm. And and get this, everything that takes place in the physical realm is the result of things taking place in the spiritual realm. Do you realize that? Everything that takes place in the physical realm is the result 
of things taking place in the spiritual realm. One of Satan's favorite strategies is to cause us to forget that truth and deal only with the physical realm, the things we can touch, see, and experience. Satan loves it when we forget about the spiritual reality of life and instead begin fighting people. Satan loves that. Make a note of this. We play into Satan's hand every time we take the fight into the physical realm and ignore the spiritual realm. We play into Satan's hand every time we take the fight into the physical realm and ignore the spiritual realm. Satan's whole goal is to get you to be mad at your boss, mad at your spouse, mad at that family member, mad at that government official, mad at that politician, get you to rage against them and wage war against them in the physical realm. Satan loves that because he knows where we could do serious damage is in the spiritual realm. Satan knows, listen, your marriage isn't going to turn around because your husband and you yell at each other. Satan knows, but we're going to have a problem if you begin to pray for your marriage. Now we're in dangerous territory. Now Satan's worried. As long as you're cussing out your boss behind your back, complaining and whining about what a jerk he is, how bad your work environment is, Satan's on cloud nine starts getting nervous when you start praying, start activating the forces of heaven on the situation. Now he's concerned. The changes we're praying for in ourselves and in others will be determined by what takes place in the spiritual realm. The changes we're praying for in ourselves and in others will be determined by what takes place in the spiritual realm. Verse 14 He keeps speaking to Daniel and says, now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. When it says many days yet to come in the latter days, it's just letting us know that it's talking about the end times, the last days. Verse 14 tells us that Daniel did not yet understand the vision and prophecy he received in the previous chapter in Daniel 9 with regards to his people, the Jews, in the end times, the 70th week. So he says here that he's come to help Daniel understand what's going to happen to his people in the latter days. So that's why I think it's possible that Daniel was mourning because he didn't yet understand God's plan to redeem Israel in the end times. So here the angel is saying, I'm coming to give you that understanding. Verse 15. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. We'll find that this seems to be another angel. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of my Lord, lowercase l, talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, I love this, I underline this whole thing, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. I love that. That's such a great word because it's a command that's given to Daniel. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Fear not, be strong. And you might be thinking, hey, I get why Daniel was beloved. He's Daniel, but I'm no Daniel. You know, the equivalent of the phrase greatly beloved only shows up two times in the Greek of the New Testament. Once when the angel Gabriel gives the news to Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, and he says that she's highly favored. It's that same phrase, greatly beloved. And then that phrase only shows up one other place in the New Testament, in Ephesians 1.6, where Paul tells us that the grace of God has made us accepted in the beloved. The actual word there is that the grace of God has made us greatly beloved in the beloved, which is Jesus. You may not feel like you're worthy of being greatly loved by God, but you are, because the grace of God has come to you through Jesus and made you holy and blameless and greatly loved by the Lord. You're as greatly loved as Daniel. You're as highly favored as Mary. That's what the Bible tells us. 
Then Daniel writes, so when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and I said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And we'll discover in the next couple of chapters exactly what this angel has been sent to share with Daniel. Verse 20, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. In other words, the battle continues, Daniel. And when I've gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. We know from history that after the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the empire of Cyrus, which ruled the world at that time, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great would rise. And this angel is telling us that just as there was a specific spiritual force assigned to the empire of Persia, there was a specific spiritual force of Satan that was assigned to the Greek Empire as well. Verse 21, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And that's where we're going to stop in the text for this week. Next week, we're going to find out what the angel shares with Daniel. It's going to be fascinating. In conclusion, let me say this. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that many of us have heard over and over and over again. But it has some incredible parallels to what the Lord said to Daniel through this angels. In, in that verse in Second Chronicles, it's on your outline. The Lord says to Israel, if my people who are called by my name will, and then underline this, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So in that verse, God reminds his people to focus on true reality, the state of things in the spiritual realm. He doesn't tell them to reform their government. He doesn't say that's the key to healing your land, getting some good godly people in government. That's what's going to change. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them that they need to write new laws and pass some new bills. He says, here's what you need to do. Three things. Change your attitude and humble yourselves. Confess that you need me. Remember that I'm God. Secondly, pray. Seek my face. And then thirdly, he says, get rid of the sin that's in your life. That is God's recipe, his formula for bringing about change in the spiritual realm. And wouldn't you agree that it is incredible the lengths that you and I will go to the hoops that we will jump through, the years that we will be willing to try anything other than the prescription that God gives in that verse. We would literally rather try anything else. Yet the truth is that our physical reality is shaped and formed by spiritual realities. This is true for our country. This is true for our province. It is true for our city. It is true for our neighborhood. It is true for our family. It is true for our marriages. It's true for our children. And it is true for ourselves. If you want to see change, I would encourage you to look at that verse and ask yourself the question, am I taking God seriously? Or am I lying to myself saying that I desperately want to see God move in this area, but yet I'm not doing the things that God says serious Christians do when they want to bring about change in the spiritual realm. Here's the incredible thing, though. Back in verse 12, the angel told Daniel, on the first day Daniel started humbling himself and praying, he was dispatched from heaven with a message for Daniel of peace, hope, and understanding. If you will follow God's prescription from Second Chronicles and do what Daniel did, God will send help today. But it may take a little while to arrive. You'll need to pray through. But you can trust that God will hear you today if you'll take him seriously. You just gotta know that you're entering a street fight. You are entering a brawl in the spiritual realm. And so you better be ready through prayer to make sure that you're the one that throws the last punch. Daniel made sure that he was the one who threw the last punch in the spiritual realm. He wasn't gonna quit. He didn't know how long it would take, but apparently, and this is huge, apparently there was a moment when the breakthrough point was reached. There was a moment, there was a last prayer that brought the breakthrough. You know, it's said that Aristotle used to walk the same route every day and he would observe a man in a quarry with a chisel and a hammer 
standing in the middle of this big rock trying to carve off a piece of rock and he just had this chisel and he would hit it with the hammer again and again and again and again. Hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands and thousands of times. Then one day, weeks later, Aristotle is walking past and this giant piece of the stone falls off and breaks off. And Aristotle's observation is this, I know that it was not the last strike of the hammer that broke the rock. It was all the strikes that came before it. And this is how prayer works. That first prayer is as crucial as the last one. But there's gonna be that moment when the breakthrough comes if we will manage to not give up. We're gonna pray in a moment and then we're gonna spend some time in worship. There's gonna be communion available in the back. I encourage you to take that. And I wanna urge you to take the time in this coming time of prayer to ask the Lord if there's an area of your life where you've been battling in the physical realm but ignoring the spiritual realm. And maybe the Lord would say to you today, I'm calling you to get into the fight where it is actually fought in the spiritual realm. I'm calling you to pray and I'm calling you to pray through. Maybe there's an area of life where you feel like you've been throwing punches at a brick wall and today the Lord is saying to you, let it go. Stop fighting with them and start praying. And watch what happens. Get rid of your sin. Pray and seek the Lord. Humble yourself before God and watch what happens. Perhaps the Lord is calling you and I to stop messing around and dabbling in prayer recreationally and become serious about it. Become serious about it so that we can see God do incredible, incredible things. It's been well said that apart from God, we can't, but that from God's perspective, apart from us, God won't. He desires to partner with us and prayer is no exception. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, thank you for the example of Daniel in your word. And Lord, we just confess, I know I confess, that we are so prone to fight our battles in the physical realm. We are so easily distracted by people and circumstances and so slow to recognize that true reality is being played out in the spiritual realms, the heavenly places. Father, here's what we know. We know that you are God of all and you are over all. There is no one and no thing that can compare to your power and your strength. But Lord, we're asking that you would remind us that you desire us to partner with you through prayer. And so Jesus, right now, we just want to collectively repent where we have directed anger and frustration at people instead of dealing with situations where a real difference can be made, which is in the arena of prayer. Father, would you forgive us and would you refocus us? And in the name of Jesus, I pray for all of us in this room that you would expose the deception of our enemy if we have been waging war instead of entering into spiritual battle through prayer with anyone in our lives. Will you bring that situation to mind right now in the name of Jesus? Give us insight and understanding, Lord. We don't come demanding, we come acknowledging that you are God, your ways are better than ours, and we wanna walk in agreement with you, God, so would you give us illumination and revelation and insight and understanding into those areas of life where we are desiring to see a significant dramatic change? And would you show us the most fruitful way to approach the situation and partner with you in it? Not just what you desire to do in the other person, but what you desire to do in us, Lord God. We acknowledge that you have a plan and your plan is best and we desire to participate in it, Lord God. Just be still before the Lord and, and allow him to perhaps reveal a situation or situations where he wants to let you know that you've been approaching it from the wrong angle and he's calling you to pray. Just maybe be still for a moment and allow him to reveal those things to you. And then just begin to pray about them. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.